Good morning again, everybody. Um, with me again in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We read a paragraph in the confession, the third one, that said that we're commanded to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the question that I want to consider this morning for all of us is why? Why? Is it just something that we say, or is there a purpose for it? Is there a meaning to it? So let's uh, dig into God's Word this morning. Before we do that, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done and all that you're doing. Father, we praise you that you take sinful, frail creatures like us and use us to carry and preach your gospel. Father, as we celebrate um, the institution of baptism, which you ordained for us until you return, Lord, I ask that our focus this morning would be on celebrating what you have done. Recognize, Father, that salvation belongs to you. It is not our work. It is not our effort. We cannot save ourselves. And if we could not celebrate this morning that you have saved us, there would be nothing to celebrate. We ask, Father, that you would cleanse us, that you would wash us as we come to your word this morning. Lord, I ask that you would remove the thoughts of all the things that would distract us, that you would allow us to focus on your word this morning. And Lord, that you would feed your sheep. We need to be fed. We need to be edified. And Lord, we ask that you would do that thing this morning. That you would open our eyes to your word. That you would open our understanding to it. That you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that your church would be edified today by all that we do and say. That you would be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so turn with me um, as we deviate from our passage that we're going to study this morning to Matthew chapter 28. We will get back to Ephesians chapter 1, and I promise um, I will not dilly-dally long in Ephesians 1. There is enough there that we could study it for weeks, so I'm going to do what we call a flyby. We're going to go right through it briefly. But I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 28 to help answer this very, very important question. Why do we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there are four commands given here for our benefit, and this is a work of the church. We call this the Great Commission. This is what God has ordered the church to do. And he gives us a very specific direction. In the name of our triune God, we are to carry out these very specific commands. So what are they? There's four things here that I just want to draw your attention to. First is the command to go. God told his disciples, and by extension us, that we are to go. say, well, what does that mean? 
He didn't give us a map and say, you know, you're going to go to Wilkesboro, North Carolina, or Raleigh, North Carolina, or Jesse, where do you live? I can't remember. Where? Hayes, yes, Hayes, North Carolina. He said, go. And the idea, the picture is, is that we are to pursue the journey that God has called us to. That may be for moms sitting at the kitchen table teaching your children the gospel. It may be in the deepest jungles of Peru. Wherever God has called us to, he tells us, go. He doesn't say, sit around and wait. God has called the church to preach the gospel. And we're to go. So the second command is to disciple the nations. I want you to see here the word nations in the original Greek is humanity. It's the word ethnos. It includes the Gentiles. As we complete or continue our study through the book of Acts, we're seeing the explosion of the gospel to who? To the Gentiles. First it starts with the Jews in Jerusalem. And then as persecution arises, the disciples and the followers of Christ are spread out. As sparks are stamped trying to put out a fire, they spray everywhere, so the gospel spreads. And Jesus made it very clear to his disciples that they are to disciple the nations. Clearly the world is in view here, beyond the twelve tribes. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this is when Paul is just converted and God directly intercedes. Paul is on a mission. Is he looking for God? No, he is looking to persecute Christians. And what does God do to Paul? He stops him dead in his tracks, disrupts his life, blinds him, and then saves him. And you pick up in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, and God is talking to Ananias here, and he says, Go, for he, Paul, is an instrument, a chosen instrument of mine to do what? To carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And so Acts recounts this explosion of the gospel to the world. And we see here the picture of the completed bride. In Revelation 7, I want you to, to think about this. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, it uses the same word. The word ethnos in the Greek. And John, as he's writing, says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every what nation from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Divine sovereign intent is shown here, and the picture of the completed bride of Christ in glory and when you peel the veil of Revelation back, we look at the book of Revelation and we think, well, it's a, it's a chronological events uh, and list of last time events. It's a listing of last time. And that's not. You know what the book of Revelation is? The book of Revelation is written to God's people to encourage them in tribulation and to remind them of the fact that he is going to complete his work. 
He is building his church. He is purifying a bride for himself. And this is what it looks like. A group that no, that no one can number from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. We hear a lot in our time about racial tension, don't we? Let me just tell you this, guys. It doesn't matter in the church of God. It doesn't matter. He will save people from every tribe, tongue, language, place. And they will comprise his completed church. Racism has no place in the church because it has no concern from God. So the third command is to baptize. And you're probably wondering why I have a jar of pickles here. Um, How many like bread and butter, butter pickles? It's one of my favorites. Yes. You you guys can have some of these after. Um, What is baptism? What is baptism? Well, the word in this text means means to repeatedly immerse or submerge. Okay? It's the Greek word baptizo. And Jesus tells his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I found this incredible quote, and I wanted to share it with you. It's from um, James Montgomery Boyce, and he is quoting. It's a quote within a quote. And he is quoting um, Nicanor here. You may have heard this, but I, I thought it was worth sharing with you again. So his comment on the definition of baptizo, what, it, what does it mean? And we're Baptists, Right? Um, the rain has stopped, so we can step outside and, and not worry about being sprinkled. But the subjects of our baptism will be dunked this morning. Um, and it's, listen, it's no small uh, controversy in the church. But I just want to simplify it for us a little bit. Not to be, here's the quote, not to be confused with 9-11, meaning the Strong's number for the Greek word bapto, The clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C. It is a recipe for making pickles. And it's helpful because it uses both words. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped. Bapto into boiling water, and then baptized, baptizo, in the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution, but the first is temporary. The second act of baptizing the vegetable produces a permanent change. So what are these? Cucumbers. Are they in their original form? They've been radically changed, haven't they? into something very, very yummy. When the New Testament uses this word, more often it refers to our union and identification with Christ, then to our water baptism. An example is Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Christ is saying that mere 
intellectual assent is not enough. There must be a union with him, a real change, like the vegetable to the pickle. Does baptism change us? Does baptism save us? No. But baptism is a picture of that change. There is no salvation in the act of baptism itself, but it pictures the radical change of life that God brings to the life of the believer. We believe in believers' baptism. We baptize believers. And that picture is the picture of the change that takes place after God radically converts a sinner. From the pickle, or from the cucumber to the pickle. So baptism is a picture of that change. We've been made new creatures. We're now unified with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what, that's what baptism pictures. So what about the mode of baptism? There's an argument between uh, sprinkling and dunking and all the rest, and there's a lot to read on that. Um, and there is a disagreement by good men in the theological world. But here's where we fall on this. And this is why I am absolutely convinced that what we're doing is the right thing. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then came Jesus from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Notice where Jesus came to. Where was John? Did you catch that? Jesus came from Galilee where? To the Jordan. What was the Jordan? It was a river, okay? He came to the river, Jordan, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, Lord, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately, listen to this, he went up from what? The water. He's at the Jordan. He's in the water with John. John baptizes him. After Jesus emerges, what does he emerge from? The water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I didn't intend to get into why Jesus was baptized. It's another message for another day. But I wanted you to see the importance of how he was baptized. And it's very simply this. We baptize by immersion because that's the example of our Lord. And so we follow him in his example. And there's much more that pictures in Scripture the the view of immersion. But as I said, there's disagreement by good men. I, most of you know I'm a huge fan of R.C. Sproul. He is a Presbyterian, unapologetically. And as far as I know, till the day he died in 2017. Good man. Um, so what's in a name? Why the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> Why? Notice that the command to baptize is tied to the distinctive, in the name. There is no other baptism like it. By the way, it distinguishes our baptism. Talking to Cameron and 
working through why we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I said, why do we do that? And Cam says, well, because if we don't baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're just taking a dip. What differentiates this act of baptism, this ordinance that God ordained for the church, is that we do it in His name. Why is that important? What is in a name? What's in a name? We, when we introduce ourselves to each other, what do we do? We identify ourselves. With our name is the, the full representation of who we are. The command to baptize is tied to this direct distinction of the name of God in triune form. The name is used for everything, and the name covers the rank, the authority, the interests, the pleasure, the commands, his excellencies, and his actions. What has God done? This is why we're commanded not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Because to do so is to slander him. It's not just to slander his name alone, but it slanders everything that he represents in everything that he has done. The name of God in in the triune form that we see it and that we're commanded here is directly tied to the command to baptize because it is, listen, this is the key. This is what I want us to take away. Baptism is a celebration of what he has done in the salvation of his people. And what I want to show you this morning is that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are intimately all in absolute, perfect agreement with the saving of sinners. That is critical for us to understand. So when we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I want you to see that the Godhead, we're not just talking about the Son. We're not just isolating the Spirit. We're not just talking about the Father. The complete triune Godhead is pictured in our salvation. So what actions did the Trinity undertake to secure our salvation? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. And I want to read verses 4 through 6. When the fullness of time had come, God the Father, listen to this, God the Father sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law. What did Jesus, and why did Jesus get baptized? What did he tell John? He was baptized to do what? Fulfill all righteousness. Jesus did not get baptized because he needed to have his sins remitted. He did not. He was baptized to fulfill God's commands perfectly. Okay? But it, when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see that? God the Father... God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three intimately involved and engaged to secure your salvation. 
Calvin had a, a, an incredibly important statement here, this quote. He says, we perceive that God cannot be truly known unless our faith distinctly conceives of three persons in one essence. And that the fruit and efficacy of baptism proceed from God the Father, adopting us through His Son, and after having cleansed us from the pollutions of the flesh through the Spirit, creating us anew to righteousness. There's a fourth command here in this passage in Matthew, and that is to teach them to observe. Jesus said, teaching them to observe the commands of God until the, what? The end of the age. This reminds us of the timeline for both New Testament ordinances of the church. What are they? Lord's Supper and Baptism. We're not going and out and back and taking a goat and slaughtering it and putting it on an altar. God has fulfilled that through the work and the sacrifice of Christ. But what he has commanded us to do are to continue to observe the Lord's Supper and baptism. And how long are we to do that? Do we get tired of doing it? No. No. Until the end of the age. Until he comes. In 1 Corinthians 11:26, we read this often when we come to the Lord's table. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. And by the way, this labor that he has given to us in the church, the call to proclaim his gospel in the Great Commission, he's not called us to do this labor alone, has he? What did he say to his disciples? When I command you to go, am I telling you to go alone? Are you, are you to go alone? What did he say? And lo, I, what? Am with you always until the end of the age. There are three points this morning that I want you to think about. Back to Ephesians. There are three points. One, the Father's sovereign action. And Jesse, this ties um, really so well with our Bible study this morning. Verses 1 through 6 deal with the Father's sovereign action in salvation. The Son's redeeming action, point number two. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit's securing action. I want you to see why we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is incredibly vital. These words have meaning. They're relevant to you, believe me. If it wasn't important to us, God would not have recorded this in his word. Listen to Charles Spurgeon regarding the Trinity and salvation. And I'll give you the old English form. He says, when thou sayest, Savior, remember there is a Trinity in that word. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, this Savior being three persons under one name. Thou canst not be saved by the Son without the Father, nor by the Father without the Son, nor by the Father and the Son without the Spirit. But as they are one in creation, so they are one in salvation, working together in one God, for our salvation, and unto that God be glory, everlasting, world without end. He continues, Learn then, O believer, to love all the persons 
of the divine trinity alike. Remember that salvation is no more the work of one than of the other. They all three agree in one. And as in creation they all said, let us make man, so in salvation they all say, let us save man. And in each of them does so much of it that it is truly the work of each and undividedly the work of all. Jesus did not come on his own separate mission. He was sent by the Father to redeem a people for himself. There was absolute unity. Open the word and go to John 17. The prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane as he sweats, as it were, drops of blood before he goes to the cross. And he's in agony in the garden. And what do you see between Jesus as he prays to the Father? We get a direct line and picture into the communication between the Father and the Son regarding their absolute commitment and union to accomplish his mission, to redeem his people. There is no distance between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in regard to your salvation. So, point number one, the Father's sovereign action. First of all, God is not God unless he is sovereign. He's not. We can devise our notion of God, but if we separate sovereignty from God, he is something else. He is an idol of our own making. So what does Paul say to the church at Ephesus? Verse 1, to the saints, the holy ones, who are in Ephesus and are faithful or trusting believers in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the faithful saints, a warning. I was thinking about the church at Ephesus, and this was a big city church in the middle of an idolatrous Mecca, wasn't it? Who did, who did Ephesus worship? Anybody know? Diana or Artemis. In Acts 19, we haven't gotten there yet, brother, but in Acts 19, we find that there are riots in the streets because the disciples, specifically Paul, is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happened? Some of the people were leaving their idols and following Jesus. And so he created, um, Paul was not looking to start trouble. But there became an uproar because the silversmiths were being cut out of their money. This is the way we make a living. And you're interfering with that. So here is this church that sits in the middle of incredible ungodliness. And I want you to look at Revelation chapter 2. This is one of the letters to the seven churches. The church at Ephesus was a literal, specific body of believers. In Revelation 2, 1 through 5, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Would you like to visit that church? 
That's a solid church. The testimony of Jesus is that they're, they're faithful. They patiently endure. They labor. They cannot bear those that are evil. They can spot a mile away false apostles coming down the street. But, but, what does he say? I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from when you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And Jesus here is not saying you're going to lose your salvation. You're going to lose your witness. I'm going to snuff out your candle. Okay? So here is a church that labors tirelessly for the gospel, loves the truth, loves sound doctrine. You read the epistle of Ephesians, and it is one of the deepest, most theologically rich epistles that Paul writes. You can see as he's writing to the church of Ephesus, there is a a maturity there in that church. This is a different letter from 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Completely different letter. They aptly identified false teachers. They opposed idolatry. But there was something amiss. They had grown cold toward their first love. What happened? What do you think happened? I think for them there was a pride in being right. Have you ever thought about that? There was a pride in being right. Right, and they seem to have lost the simplicity that's found in Christ. And we are prone as believers to this, aren't we? We are prone to this. We talked about sanctification. And as we progress in our walk with God, and by God's grace, there's less sin. You know what the temptation knocking on the other side of the door is? I'm not the person that I was 30 years ago. Look at me. Look how holy I am. That's the, that's the thought that Satan tempts us with. Look at the progress that I have made. They lost the simplicity, or they lost the focus of the simplicity that is in Christ. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to this other church that we would never want to go to. Corinthian church, and he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The basic fundamentals of salvation, that's where it's at. So you say, Danny, what, are, you, are you saying we shouldn't study? Are you saying that we should not progress in our knowledge? No. it's not what I'm saying. Should we grow in our knowledge of God's Word? Should we be in it, studying it? Absolutely, a thousand times, yes. Should we study doctrine and theology? A thousand times, yes. But we can never come unmoored from the person or the subject of that doctrine. Do you see the difference? We can make an idol of sound doctrine. Think about that, guys. 
we can make an idol of sound doctrine. If we come unmoored from the subject of that doctrine, the church in Ephesus was theologically sound. And what did Jesus say of them? You've left your first love. You're worshiping the doctrine and not the, the object of that doctrine, which is Christ. To do so leaves us proud, arrogant, cold, without tender affection for those that need the gospel. And our eyes move beyond our first love. Paul said this, and there was a, there was a, a great debate in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge does what? Puffs up means to inflate with pride. I, I, I imagine that bullfrog that just, right? Look at me. I have this knowledge. I know that this is meat offered to idols. Therefore, I have freedom to eat it because it's meat offered to nothing. And then what, what did the believers in that church, the younger believers, the new believers, they were like, I can't, I can't eat that. That's part of the idolatrous practice of the city. I can't take, take part in that. Paul said, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What was he saying? For meat, don't harm your brother. Now, is Paul being anti-knowledge here? Is he saying, don't go to seminary, don't study, don't get in? No. What he's saying is when our knowledge separates us, from the object of that knowledge, we lose sight of our first love. And it is, brothers and sisters, this is a warning to all of us, especially those that have been saved for many, many years. Why? You left your first love. What is the net result of that? The fire doesn't burn like it used to, does it? We often joke about that with new believers. We say, they're on fire, right? They'll get over it. Give them a little time. Why? They're on fire because they love the first object of their affection. When God saves you from your sin, you love the Savior. You're drawn with affection towards the Savior, the one that pulled you up out of the pit and saved you. How do we lose that? How do we lose that that enthusiasm? Well, I've grown in knowledge. I'm more mature now. We can be right and still wrong. Think about that. If knowledge is not accompanied by love, love first to our Savior, secondly to our brothers and our sisters in Christ, and then thirdly, who are we to love outside the church? Our enemies. What will God do with our pride? We've seen leaders of the faith fall, haven't we? And we stand back and we say, wow, I'd never do that. So-and-so, a pastor, falls into deep sin and is taken out of the pulpit. And we say, man, that's awful. He shouldn't have been doing this. He shouldn't have been doing that. What does the scripture say? If any man thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Pride 
gets us to a position where God will deal with that. He will. God is not going to leave the believer in a state of pride. Why? Because it robs him of his glory. It robs him. He's not going to leave us in that state. So what will he do? He will humble us. Nothing will humble us greater than that fall. Those of you that are humble, restore those that have fallen. It is the work of the church to restore those that are fallen. Why? Because we could be the same person. May the words never leave our mouths. I would never do that. Have you ever said it? I would never do that. God will strip away our pride by allowing us to see how sinful we really are. And as we talked this morning, as we advance in our sanctification and we grow in our Christ-likeness, the, the, the thing that comes back incessantly is how much of a sinner I am. And we're reminded of that. We have more of an acute awareness of our own sinfulness. The more mature in Christ we grow, we become more acutely aware of our sinfulness. Don't lose that. Don't sit there in pride and say, that'll never happen to me. So here's the warning to the church at Ephesus. The spiritually mature, the spiritually advanced church at Ephesus. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And I'm going to move through this quickly, guys. There's a lot to cover here. The following declarations that Paul makes to the church at Ephesus, he lists them very distinctly, not as matters of church controversy. And there are. This chapter is very controversial in the evangelical church. It is. But does Paul categorize them? Here are great controversies that I want you to understand. No. He calls them spiritual blessings. If God has called something a spiritual blessing, what does he intend for you to do with that? He doesn't say, I want you to fully comprehend it. I want you to fully understand it. I want you to fully expound it. No, it is for your good. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Let's say this, 1 Corinthians 2.14. What does the natural man say concerning spiritual things? It's folly. It's nonsense. Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? He can't. They're folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's referring to the spiritual deadness of the natural man. So when Paul says these are spiritual blessings, these are to be understood by the spiritually alive. Yes, they'll be controversial to those that call them folly and foolishness. Um, Ligonier does a state of theology annually, and this question was asked. Um, here was the, the following statement, 
And the, this was a poll. Do you believe this or do you disagree with this? The statement is, God chose the people he would save before he created the world. of professing U.S. evangelicals agree. 44% disagree. There's a little bit of controversy there. A little bit of disagreement. So, what do we do? We go to God's Word. It alone answers the controversy. Now, that does not say that the controversy is removed. It does not say that we'll understand it perfectly. But what does God call us to do with His Word? He calls us to obey it, to believe it. Verse 4, again, this is a spiritual blessing. Paul says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The word chose is, the, is a Greek word, eklegomai. It means to pick out or choose. When did God do this? Well, Paul makes it very clear. This choice that he is referring to here in Ephesians chapter 1 was done before the foundation of the world. Before time began, before the clock started, before God said, let there be light, he chose. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because, listen, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.2 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect... The word elect there is the word eklektos, chosen by God to obtain salvation. Titus 1-2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Here's a question. God promised who? Were you there? I wasn't there. Did he make a promise to me before time began? This is what we call covenant language. Where was the promise made to save sinners? It was made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. This is the covenant of salvation. Matthew Henry says this, Baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This was intended as the summary of the first principles of the Christian religion and of the new covenant. We celebrate baptism as being brought into the covenant. It's a picture of that does not savingly bring us into the covenant, but it's a picture, as we read, that we're united with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. But, 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 election is just for the Jews. And the question, and Paul answers this himself, who was what? A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Who is Israel? I mean, Paul, Paul says this in Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. By the way, God has not failed to save one person that he has determined to save. For not all who are descended from Israel, listen to this, belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, and listen to this carefully, this is not Danny Lay talking. This is Paul. This is God's word. First, Romans 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Did you hear that? This means that it is not the children of the flesh that are the children of God. But was Paul saved? Yes. Was he one of the elect of God? Absolutely. A thousand times yes. Was he of the tribe of Benjamin? Yes. But did all Israel believe? No. We're going through our study in the Old Testament. Israel repeatedly, time and time and time again, falls into sin and rebellion against God. But there is a remnant, the Scripture says, of those that believe. We, we see it with Moses, with, with Aaron, with, with, um, with Joshua, with Caleb. There was a wholesale national departure from the truth from Israel and a rebellion against God, and there were some that did not depart in that rebellion. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit, listen to this please, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Who is that? In one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Listen to Paul. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. If you are in the body of Christ and you have been genuinely born of the spirit of God, the scripture says, be diligent, brethren, to make whose? Your calling and election sure. God has not called me to determine if you or you or you are elect. Not my business. That is his business. He has called us to make sure that we are. Are you a child of God? Notice what he says, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to be holy and blameless. Not because he looked down through the quarter of time and said, well, Danny's going to make a great Christian. I think I'll choose him. It's not what's going on here. What am I? Talk about what's in a name. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know what I am prior to God's intervening grace? I'm a son of Satan. How's that for our egos? Scripture tells us we are children of the devil. He is working effectually in his children to cause them to disobey, to rebel against God. He says, and you were by nature children of wrath. That doesn't help our sense of um, 
fulfillment, does it? Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The word predestined is a Greek pro or idzo. It means to decide beforehand, to foreordain, to decree from eternity. Again, no small matter of controversy. Let's put it this way. He put our destination into the navigation system. You're getting ready to take a trip. What do you do? It used to be that guys like myself would have a sense of direction, right? Honey, don't worry. We'll get there. You've never done that, right? I know the way. I don't need a map. Put the map away. (laughs) Been on many trips with Dad where we had um, no need for the map. And let's just say we took the scenic route. (laughs) Paul says God puts our eternal destination and he programs it in to the navigation system. And guess what? You will arrive where he has decreed you to go. Our destiny is set. You say, should this encourage me? Paul said, this is a spiritual blessing for you. This should encourage me. For me, this is comfort. To the the one that sits here in the pew and says, but I am the master of my own destiny. To him, this is sacrilege to the idol of self. Don't tell me where I'm going. It's up to me. It's not what Paul says. Say, well, what about fairness? What about justice? I love what Sproul, fantastic Presbyterian, said. He said, God does not always act with justice. What? Sometimes he acts with mercy. Mercy is not justice, but it is also not injustice. Injustice violates righteousness. Mercy manifests kindness and grace and does no violence to righteousness. We may see non-justice in God, which is mercy, but we never see injustice with God. So he has given some, the believer, mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God holding back what? What I deserve. While he has held back what I deserve, he has saved me from his wrath. We talk about salvation being salvation from hell. And yes, it is. But why am I in hell as a sinner? Because the wrath of God is being poured out on me. I'm not innocent. And I don't want justice. I want the righteousness of Christ. Jesus took justice. John 1.12 But to all who did receive Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born. And the picture here of of being born is the picture of regeneration. Not of the blood, or not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Brothers and sisters, salvation comes from God. Verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace. You want to ask a question? Here's what I don't get. Why? Why would he save a sinner like me? Why? The only answer I can come up with is what Scripture gives me, which is it's for his glory. It's for his glory. God does not share his glory with another. 
He saved me for His glory. And when we talk about God's glory, it's Him putting His name, His reputation, His character out there for all the world to see. He's taken sinners like us who deserved to feed the flames of hell, and He has saved us, made made us His children, adopted us into His family, who were formerly sons and daughters of Satan. Why? For His glory. Not so that we can pat our back and say, well, look look at what I did. We are simultaneously recipients of both grace and mercy. Dad would often call grace and mercy the twin sisters. Mercy is God holding back what we deserve. Grace is God giving what? To us what we don't deserve. They're they're linked. Secondly, the son's redeeming action, verses 7 through 12. Verse 7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The Son has secured our redemption. The word redemption means to buy, to purchase. He has paid your debt. How did he do it? There's the prepositional phrase there through the shedding of his blood. Somebody had to die. Now, a guilty man can die for his own sins, and what does he accomplish? Nothing. I can't make that payment. This is a debt that is unpayable by me. Why? Because my sin is against an eternal, holy God. I can't pay that back. But the blood of Jesus can. The blood of Jesus did. And that's what Paul is saying. We have redemption through His blood. How do I pay for my sins? There are people that live their whole lives trying to pay for their sins. We call that religion. Only the blood pays it. And then he says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There are no sweeter words in all of Scripture than when Jesus says to us, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Think about that. Your sins are forgiven. I had a man come into my office this past week at work and he said, talking, he said, I got... I got some health problems. He said, I've got a tumor. He said, I haven't been feeling right for three years. And and I've gone to the doctors and they say, you're fine. He said, I'm not fine. And there's this mass of something in my chest. And I could see it troubled him. And we got to talking. I said, I asked him, I said, are your sins forgiven? And he smiled. He said, yes. I may have a tumor in my chest, but if my sins are forgiven, what else matters? What else matters? Jesus was ridiculed by the Pharisees because He said, your sins are forgiven. And they said, that's heresy. He said, well, what's easier? 
to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? And the obvious answer to that is anybody can say that your sins are forgiven, right? But not anybody can say to the cripple, take up your bed and walk, go home. And he did. And the scripture says he did this so that they would understand the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Listen, you and I can forgive each other when we sin against each other. And we should. But does that have eternal value in regard to your eternal salvation? No. I can go to a man and confess my sins and he can say, I forgive you. But it's only when Jesus whispers in our ears, my child, your sins are forgiven, that we're changed. It changes everything. Verse 9, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will. I skipped right over the last part of verse 7. According to the riches of his grace. Why does he forgive our sins? Grace. Which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. God giving to us what we don't deserve. Do I deserve to have my sins forgiven? I'm working really hard. I make three extra pies every time there's a bake sale for the church. I should be forgiven. I've earned it. No, we haven't. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. He did this for his will, for his purpose, and we get to see that purpose fulfilled in our lives, and this too is a spiritual blessing. In verse 10 he says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. His plan, brothers and sisters, is to redeem a people for himself. And I I mentioned Revelation 7, the book of Revelation. Again, not a sequential listing of last times. We often look at it as, well, if this happens and this happens, well, that's... It is a picture, and when you read chapter 1... As John writes under the the influence of the Holy Spirit, it is for the encouragement and the building of the church. It is his plan to redeem a people for himself, a great multitude that cannot be numbered of every nation. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. What? I earned an inheritance. Nope. Through him, I have obtained an inheritance. What is that inheritance? It's eternal life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-6, through 6, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that what? doesn't perish. Undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You will get pummeled in this life by trials. God has ordained If you hear somebody say that God doesn't want you to go through pain or suffering, run from them because they're lying to you. 
He has ordained that through suffering He refines us and purifies us and builds our faith. Don't run from that. But while we're going through that and that heaviness and that weight is on our shoulders, rest in this. Know that your, your inheritance is untouchable. Mom used to have this ceramic red riding hood about so tall. And she always put her most valuable baked goods that she did not want the kids to touch on the top shelf. We would often find ways to try and work around this. But think about this, guys. Your eternal security is on the top shelf. Satan can't touch it. You can't unsave yourself. You are kept by him. Your eternal inheritance is untouchable. This is not a 401k in the stock market. Because up and down, up and down. Well, should I retire today? Nope, I'm going to wait another three years. Our eternal inheritance is just that. It's eternal. It's untouchable. He said, continuing in verse 11, having predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul does it again. He rubs more salt in the wound. Oh, wait. This is a spiritual blessing to encourage God's people with. My eternal security is resting in him, not my performance. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Is there a, a, a place for the believer to be engaged in holiness? Yes. Are we, we to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Yes. As the Spirit of God works in our lives, we become more Christ-like. There is work. There is a battle that you and I are to be engaged in. But make no mistake, it's Him that saves us. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, I ask the question, if this question does not come into your head, why, why, why? Why would he do that? So that we might glorify him. Lastly, the Holy Spirit's securing action, verse 13 and 14. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus when he came to him by night? He didn't want to be seen. And Nicodemus wants to talk shop with Jesus. He figures he's on the same theological level of Jesus. We're going to talk um, teacher to teacher. And surely Jesus will recognize my bona fides. My doctorate degree in Phariseeism. Jesus will recognize that, surely. He comes to Jesus by night, don't want anybody to see. And what does Jesus say to him? Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you will enter the kingdom of heaven, what must happen? You must be born again. Well, how do I do that? I can't do it. What did you what role did you play in your own birth? I was there. I was certainly a, benef- a, bener- a beneficiary of being born, but I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't say to my parents, hey, I'd really like to be named Danny. Could you, no, I don't want to be a Robert. I'd prefer Danny. No. 
He said, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. My question, brothers and sisters, is how did you hear? How did you hear? Well, I'm smart. What did I just read in Ephesians 2? What does Paul tell us that we are before we're born again? He says, you're dead in trespasses and sins. What does a dead man hear? What does a dead man hear? Nothing. Something has to change for him to hear. When, when, when Paul says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, what had to happen? We often talk about Lazarus. Jesus said to Lazarus after he was three days in the tomb and he stunk. Lazarus, come forth. For Lazarus to obey that command, what had to happen? Jesus commanded Lazarus. Thankfully, he used Lazarus' name, right? But if Jesus commanded Lazarus to come forth, what had to happen to Lazarus for him to obey that? How did Lazarus hear Jesus' command? He's dead. He's three days in the grave. The rotting process has begun. He smells. In fact, Mary said, Lord, it's, it's too late. He already stinks. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walked out of the grave. Do you think there was a group of people there slow clapping? Well done, Lazarus. Look at what you did. See, we put this emphasis on my response when it is God that raises the dead. Lazarus didn't do anything. You say, yes, he responded. Absolutely he responded. God said, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? He obeyed. Why? Because he heard the command of Jesus to come forth. For you to obey, you have to hear it. For you to hear it, you have to be made alive. Regeneration is the work of God. When we talk about the Holy Spirit engaged in our salvation, it is all of Him, every bit of it. You say, but I responded in faith. Yes, you heard and you believed. You did what living people do. You walked out of the tomb. Let's pat ourselves on the back for that. No, all glory goes to God. He did it. He did it. Baptism is a celebration, guys, of what Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have done to save us. And then he says, Paul says this, you're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. What does that mean? The word means to be stamped. It is a stamp of security. What are you saying? It is through the Holy Spirit that we are sealed eternally. How, let me ask you this. How do you know this morning, as you sit in these chairs, that you are saved? How do you know? Well, if I open my Bible, there's this date. Listen, the proof of your salvation is that the Spirit of God indwells you. If you have been born again, He lives in you. He takes up residence. And when He takes up residence, you're changed. He, he makes you a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Did the old things pass away because I'm behaving better? I'm good at pretending to be a Christian now? No. The old things are passed away because He made me a new creature. He gave me life. I was dead. 
He's given me life. That's His grace. It's not me. But then Paul says He seals us. He stamps the envelope and says, that's where you're going. The proof of your salvation is not a date written in your Bible. That may have been the day that you understood what God had done. But the proof of your salvation, brothers and sisters, is is the Spirit of God living inside of you today. Because if He's taken up residence in you, guess what He's not going to do? He's never going to leave or forsake His people. The Spirit of God does not take up residence in your life and change you and make you a new creature and then walk away. Doesn't do it. And then He says this. For a little icing on the cake, verse 14. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What is Paul saying? He gave us His Spirit. He gave us life. And God wants His people to know that the Holy Spirit indwelling you is proof for you that you belong to Him. He ransomed you. Right? We just read that. He ransomed us. How do we know that we're going to get there? Paul says he gave you his spirit as down payment until we acquire full possession. What does that mean? Someday we will be with God in his presence, at which time faith is no longer relevant, isn't it? Will we need faith in heaven? It'll cease to matter then. Why? Because we're in His presence. But how do I know in the meantime? Does God want me to live every day in doubt as to whether or not I belong to Him? Do we? Sometimes we wrestle with that, don't we? With the assurance of our salvation. Paul says, He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He's the down payment, guys. God has given His Spirit to you in regeneration as down payment, proof to you that He has done what He said He would do and that He is doing what He said He would do. 1 John 5, 1-2, and then verse 13, and we're going to close. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There is regeneration. In other words, you don't believe unless you've been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. There is love for the brethren right there. You want proof of your salvation? The fruit of that is that I love my brother and my sister. By this we know that we love the children of God and we love God and obey His commandments. Verse 13, And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Listen to this. That you may know that you have eternal life. It is a lie to think that we can't be sure of eternal life until we're in His presence. God has given us His Spirit so that we may know, know that we have eternal life. And again, here's the same reoccurring theme. In all three points, Paul repeats the same theme. Why? Why, why, why? To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. God saves sinners like us for the praise of His glory. And as we 
obey Him in the ordinance of baptism, it is a picture of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in absolute unity as He saves sinners and transforms them, brings them into His church. Both, both mystically, I become a part of the, the, the body of Christ, but also locally, in the local church. This is what God does. And brothers and sisters, this is all of Him. We are recipients of grace. Salvation belongs to God. It is all for His glory. And today we celebrate what our triune God has done in the lives of his people with this picture of baptism. And the promise of the gospel is this. Romans 10, 13, for for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. If you doubt where you stand this morning, call out to God. Because it is him alone that can save you. What saves you? Those that call on his what? Name. It's his reputation, his character, his actions. So when we celebrate baptism, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of that is wrapped up to say this very simple thing. I am saved by grace, by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can do nothing but marvel as we think about what you've done. And Father, for some of us it may have been such a long time since we first realized your work in our lives. We experienced our conversion and saw you make that change in our life, make us new creatures. And Lord, maybe our The fires are embers. We've lost that zeal, that excitement, that joy. Lord, I pray that you would restore that to us this morning. Father, there is nothing old hat about you saving sinners and forgiving their sins. There's nothing about that that should be old news to us. And Lord, you have given us your table that we come to on a regular basis not to remind ourselves of what we did, but to remind us of what you did. You've given us baptism. This, this group of witnesses this morning, Lord, that will watch what you have done in the lives of these three young people. It's for our good to see what you have done. It is to remind us of our first love. Lord, we recognize that sin steals away the joy of our salvation and is... Your servant David said in Psalm 51, as he asked you to restore to him the joy of our salvation, I ask that you would renew that if it's waning. Father, we thank you for forgiveness of sin. We thank you for securing our salvation. And we do nothing but stand in awe and glorify you for it, because it is all of grace. In your name we pray. Amen.